Hello, welcome to Adventures Among Ideas. So there are a great many confusions about Jacques Derrida, the uh, famous or infamous, depending how you uh, think about him, uh, French philosopher Jacques Derrida. To some extent, and maybe to a great extent, these confusions are justified. Uh, Derrida, you may know, had a famously difficult writing style, one of my favorite uh, stories about this was told by the American philosopher John Searle. John Searle and Derrida had a big debate uh, many years ago now, like 30 years ago or something. Um, so Searle once wrote that uh, Michel Foucault, Foucault was another uh, famous French intellectual, but Michel Foucault once characterized Derrida's prose style to me as obscurantisme terroriste, which means terroristic obscurantism. So the text this is uh, Searle's uh, paraphrasing of Foucault. The text is written so obscurely that you can't figure out exactly what the thesis is, hence obscurantisme. And then, when one criticizes it, the author says, Vous m'avez mal compris. Vous étiez idiot. You misunderstood me, you are stupid. It's the meaning of that, I think. So hence the terroriste part. This uh, somehow reminds me of the saying that a bad workman blames his tool. Well, we might say that a bad writer blames his readers. But I'm being a little bit unfair to Derrida here because, uh, well, he's caused me so much pain as a reader. Anyway, uh, in principle, the theory of deconstruction is not so hard to understand as you might think. Um, I went a long time without quite understanding it or pretending that I understood it. Um, this is my effort to try to explain it in a simple, understandable way, um, as I've been looking at uh, the reception of deconstruction in the United States recently. So I want to try to briefly describe the theory and the method of deconstruction and illustrate it with an example from the uh, American critic J. Hillis Miller, who was a, a follower of Derrida's, a friend of Derrida's. There are a, no a number of criticisms of deconstruction that people have made over the years and that I might also want, uh, might want to make, but in this particular episode I uh, mostly just want to try to explain deconstruction in a way that I find useful and maybe other people will find useful. To give a little bit of background first, the term deconstruction was first given the specific philosophical meaning that it has today by Derrida in his publications of 1967. If you're not too familiar with Derrida, 1967 was the year that really put him on the map in philosophy. This was when he kind of burst onto the scene. Um, in that year, at the age of only 36 or 37, he published Of Grammatology, which is still maybe his most famous writing. He published uh, Writing and Difference, another book, and Voice and Phenomenon, also called Speech and Phenomena. So the idea of deconstruction started to trickle into the United States just about that time, the mid-1960s. Derrida participated in a, collo a colloquium at Johns Hopkins University's in uh, University in 1966, which was very influential in introducing American academics to uh, continental theory, and especially structuralism and kind of a post-structuralism represented by Derrida. One of the academics who met Derrida at this time was the literary critic J. Hillis Miller, who I'll talk about 
uh, Miller had already started reading Derrida before this, actually. Um, but over the next few years, they would become friends and remain friends and colleagues for the rest of their lives. Miller was one of the first American converts to decon uh, Derrida's deconstruction. <clears throat> as far as I can gather, Miller first started mentioning Derrida and deconstruction in his publications from 1970. Uh, we can take 1970 as roughly the start of deconstructive criticism, literary criticism, in the United States. And it is of historical interest. Um, J. Hillis Miller. Uh, Miller was involved in some debates concerning deconstruction and the interpretation of texts. One of the participants in these debates um, was M. H. Abrams. They went back and forth a, a few times. Abrams was, a, was another qu uh, quite well-known literary critic. And Abrams was probably one of the first traditional American critics to try to understand, really understand deconstruction sympathetically. Abrams always remained critical, was critical of deconstruction, but he also found some things to appreciate about it. And I, I rely here a lot on Abrams' analysis of deconstruction, which not everyone is going to agree with. I also rely on a book by the Greek Derrida scholar Gerasimos Kakoliris called Derrida's Deconstructive Double Reading. The English edition of this book came out just this year, 2022, I believe. Kakoliris follows Abrams' analysis in important ways, although Kakoliris' engagement with Derrida is broader um, than Abrams' was since uh, Kakoliris is kind of dedicated to Derrida and Abrams, Abrams had his own, own stuff going on. Um, but whether Abrams and Kakoliris are correct about Derrida is hard to say. There's a lot of room for disagreement, of course. There's this obscurantisme aspect to Derrida. Uh, and Abrams and Hillis Miller disagreed sharply about the nature of deconstruction in their back and forths, their debates and stuff. Anyway, I think the analysis given by uh, Abrams and Kakoliris gives us an interesting and useful way to think about how texts are interpreted by deconstructionists, even if there will never be complete agreement about uh, what Derrida was uh, up to. Anyway, sorry for all this preamble, but I want to give a fair warning that I'm wading into controversial territory and that I'm, I'm relying on a very particular interpretation of Derrida which some people will agree with, some people won't agree with, but that's kind of the nature of the business. So with that said, let's talk about Derrida's and Deconstruction's two kinds of reading, or what Abrams calls Derrida's double dealing with texts. So Deconstruction, to get right into it, is actually a two-leveled procedure, or what Derrida calls a double gesture. This was one of Derrida's words, the double gesture. Um, now, traditional literary crit criticism is also two-leveled in a certain sense. So M.H. Abrams called the two levels of traditional criticism construing and explicating. I'm going to be using these words a bunch, so we'll get used to them. Um, when you construe a text, you try to make out what the sentences of a text signify in the order in which those sentences occur, right? Going from the beginning of the text to the end of a text, what does each of these parts of it mean? What do these sentences mean when put in this particular sequence? The poem we'll talk about in a minute begins with the words, a slumber did my spirit seal. 
when you construe this line, a slumber did my spirit seal, you want to say what it means in the context of the rest of the poem. And you want to say this in your own words, right? Your teacher used to tell, this, tell you this, write it using your own words. Uh, so saying what it means, what the text means, the poem means, usually means considering the author's intention, right? What do we think the author was trying to accomplish by writing this particular poem by writing these words in this order and so on. Derrida, Derrida calls this, calls construal, a doubling commentary, since we're trying, in a sense, to repeat what the author has already said, but in a maybe more obvious way or ordinary way, right? So the meaning of the line, a slumber did my spirit seal, if we're going to construe this or double it, um, it could be something like, my spirit was closed off to the world as if I were asleep, right? So slumber did my spirit seal, my spirit is slumbering, it's closed off um, from the world, it's kind of unconscious, closed off as if I uh, were asleep. And spirit I might want to construe, but that's a very difficult word. So anyway, uh, moving on, after or alongside construal, according to Abrams, comes explication. So construal and explanation, explication kind of go together. Um, explication kind of follows uh, to some extent, but they're really kind of a back and forth. So when you explicate a text, you ask about things like its genre, its structure, its main themes or ideas, the uh, effects in the reader that the author was trying to achieve, the rhetorical figures the author uses, and things like that. So construal merges into explication. There's no sharp boundary between them, between construal and explication. Uh, critics generally fade or slide back and forth between them because how you explicate a text, what you think its genre is or what you think its main theme is, uh, what you think it's trying to do, can change how you interpret the meanings of its words. So explication, I would say, involves a higher degree of inference than construal. It also involves the importation of personal interests, of professional interests. So a poem or a novel doesn't usually just come right out and say, this is my most important theme, or now I want you to feel this way, now I want you to feel that way, or I have a cyclical organization, or I am a Bildungsroman. Usually we have to figure these things out based on the evidence in the text plus our knowledge of culture and literary history and the author's biography and things like that. So we use all this information to kind of say more about what the text means. And these explications are added into our interpretation of the poem. So the poem, again, that we'll talk about in a minute is usually explicated as being about the death of Lucy, who may or may not have been a real person that the poet uh, really knew. The poem does not mention the name Lucy, so we can't necessarily construe it as saying anything about Lucy, right? The name Lucy is not in the poem, so we can't construe that this poem means something about Lucy. But according to other evidence, we can ex explicate it as being what is called a Lucy poem. That's a particular, uh, I guess, a genre of poem in Wordsworth, who I'm talking about here. Um, so this is a result of explication, right? Because Lucy is not in, uh, specifically in the poem, but it's normally explicated as being about Lucy or being a Lu what's called a Lucy poem. And if we make this explication, it changes how we construe the poem, like what we take the basic meaning of the poem to be. So we take it to be 
as about this figure named Lucy. Um, so construal is doubling the meaning of the poem in ordinary language, bearing in mind what is known of the author's intentions, while explication is making inferences about the poem based on what you know of the in a broader context. Construal and explication are common to most traditional modes of criticism, rhetorical criticism, historical, biographical, formal criticism, close reading, and so on, although close reading is uh, tricky because it tries to avoid explication. Um, but it kind of sneaks it in. Anyway, I'm not talking about close reading today. But um, deconstruction goes beyond construal explication to a stage that can be called dissemination. There's the various terms for this, but I like the term dissemination, um, which is Derrida's word, translated into English, of course. Depending on how you look at it, uh, deconstruction either adds dissemination onto the levels of construal and explication, or it replaces explication with dissemination, or it mixes in with uh, um, dissemination in with explication to create something maybe more playful than uh, traditional explication. The example I'll give from Miller seems like uh, an especially wide-ranging version of explication. So it's definitely related to kind of traditional explication, but it maybe goes beyond what a traditional critic would want to do in that phase of the critique, in that phase of the analysis. So let me say more about what is dissemination. Dissemination basically undermines the results of construal. So construal gives you the basic kind of the, the common sense meaning of the text, what you think the author was trying to say with this. Dissemination undermines that. It shows how the text also means something other than what the author wanted it to mean. It shows what the text means despite the writer, in spite of the writer. The purpose of dissemination is to reveal to us the ultimate instability or undecidability of meaning. Undecidability is a big word in Derrida as well. So meaning for Derrida must be guaranteed by some sort of ground or foundation. But there is, in reality, no such ground or foundation. Traditionally, the ground of meaning was taken to be the author's intention, right? But the text, once it's created and circulated, breaks free of these intentions. It breaks free of the author's intentions. It gets out of control of the author, or out of the author's control. <clears throat> if it was ever really under the author's control in the first place. So this absence, absence of a foundation for the meaning of the text is shown by the deconstructor's ability to disseminate the construed meaning into a series of opposite or alternative meanings. So the text dissolves from a sequence of determinate meanings into a loose network of traces of meanings, right? So in a construal, you figure out what it means, what this means in this order, in dissemination, you kind of dissolve this, show how it um, breaks apart into all these other meanings, which we can't really decide which one is the right meaning. So the construed meaning is shown to be, as Miller has put it, one strand in a complex fabric. So the text kind of breaks apart, kind of explodes into a fa um, kind of this fabric of threads of different meanings. And ultimately, we're not able to choose which meaning is the right meaning. So there's a couple of things I want to point out here. 
So the first is that deconstructionists seem to be playing with the gap between author meaning and reader meaning, or um, in speech we talk about speaker meaning and listener meaning, right? So the author meaning comes from the fact that an author creates a text in response to some situation and wants, in turn, a particular kind of response or range of responses from the reader. So if something happens to me in life, I observe something, whatever, I create a text that I want to maybe convey my experience, capture something about my experience, give some kind of uh, experience to the reader. And yeah, and then traditional criti criticism tries to figure out what the author wanted from the reader and how the author went about trying to get this response. So how does the text work in order to create this type of experience in the reader? But there's also what the reader actually understands, right? Authors can't totally control what readers understand from a particular text. Um, in ordinary life, there are practical limits on what readers or listeners, say, understand. Um, these limits are given by experience, basically the consequences of understanding or misunderstanding, right? In real life, there are real consequences when we understand or don't understand what someone has said or written to us. Uh, when you see a street sign that says no parking, there are consequences for how you interpret this. If you interpret it in a way other than what the people who put the sign there intended, you risk getting fined or having your car towed or something like that. But with a literary text or even a something like a philosophical treatise, there are usually no great consequences for misunderstanding from the author's perspective, right? No lives are at stake if we, say, get Wordsworth's intentions wrong, if we give his text a meaning that he would not have agreed with. The reader is free to make of the text whatever she wants, basically. It's not like her car will get towed if she gets the text wrong. It's not like her cat will get euthanized if she gets the text wrong, right? So deconstructionists try to limit, actually, deconstructionists actually do try to limit the, um, the free play to some extent. So it's not really just anything goes when a deconstructionist looks at a text. There's a certain kind of method to the madness. Um, they focus on certain key words and make connections with these words to other words. Um, and they make oppositions. They look for like, you know, binaries and oppositions and stuff like that. There's kind of certain kinds of things that a deconstructionist will look for in practice rather than just totally kind of um, altering the text, but it is can be pretty loose as well. Um, but yeah, yeah, in principle, there's not really any limit to the way a reader can play with the meaning of the text. I mean, the author is not going to break into your house and uh, tell you that you're wrong in most cases. A deconstructive analysis could, in principle, be, I think because of this, go on forever. And <laughs> in my view, some of the analyses do feel like they go on forever. Um, and then secondly, I want to point out that what you get with deconstruction is different than what you find in something like Freudian or Marxist or feminist criticism or critical race theory based criticism. Um, even though deconstruction is sometimes um, grouped along with these as kind of a postmodern criticism, some of these might be considered more modernist criticisms. Um, yeah, so in Freudian, but they're all things that maybe uh, conservative critics or conservative political conservatives wouldn't necessarily like. Um, in Freudian criticism, for example, a poem might be shown to me not what it would be tr traditionally construed as, 
but as an expression of, say, the Oedipus complex. And this, um, the idea that the text is about the Oedipus complex or an expression of the Oedipus complex is supposed to be the deeper or the real meaning of the poem. When other types of criticism, the poem might be explicated as an expression of class struggle or patriarchy or white supremacy and so on. Um, and these are decisions about the real meaning of the poem. So the meaning is decidable in other kinds of um, um, uh, criticism, maybe non-traditional criticisms. So a Freudian or a Marxist reading, <coughs> reading tries to tell us what the poem really means according to that theory. But, in deconstruction, the meaning is supposed to be left as undecidable rather than decidable. So does the poem mean what it is traditionally construed to mean, or does it mean one of the alternative disseminative meanings? From a deconstructive perspective, it means all of these things, and it's only by a kind of act of will or a bias that the reader makes it mean one or the other. So deconstruction is different um, in some ways from other types of criticism, right? Even those types of criticism that might seem to be politically more aligned with it. But it's also similar, I would say, in that the results tend to be the same, right? In deconstruction, the meaning always turns out to be undecidable. You kind of know in advance what the end result is going to be. Kind of like in uh, feminist criticism, the text always turns out to be about gender politics or patriarchy. There's always these elements to be found in the text. In Marxist criticism, the text always turns out to be about class struggle or false consciousness or something like that. Uh, in Freud, the text always turns out to be about sex in some way. So the conclusion is kind of foregone, but um, I suppose the journey of how you get there is the interesting part, if you're into it. Uh, so let's go on to an example. Probably the most famous example of deconstructive double reading is found in Derrida's Of Grammatology, which applies the procedure to Rousseau, to some of Rousseau's writings, and um, uh, Kako Lyris's book is basically about that. But for the sake of uh, time, for doing something a little bit more manageable, I'm going to look at a short example from J. Hillis Miller, who I mentioned uh, a long time ago at the beginning of this, um, this talk. Uh, so this example is, uh, comes from an essay by Miller called On Edge, an essay he wrote um, back in, I think, 1979, or was published anyway, in, I think, in 1979. Uh, in this essay, he illustrates deconstruction with an interpretation of Wordsworth poem, Wordsworth's poem, A Slumber Did My Spirit Seal. I have already mentioned this a couple of times. The poem is very short, so I'll read it to you. The poem goes like this. A slumber did my spirit seal, I had no human fears. She seemed a thing that could not feel the touch of earthly years. No motion has she now, no force. She neither hears nor sees, rolled around in earth's diurnal course with rocks and stones and trees. It's a very famous poem. Um, and we'll come back to a number of, the, number of these lines, of course. Uh, Miller begins by construing and explicating the poem in a kind of traditional way. So he points out who wrote the poem, Wordsworth, um, and the conditions under which it was written. So he goes into some of the bio biographical stuff about Wordsworth. He points out the form of the poem with its two stanzas. There's kind of these two sections, basically two sentences. 
um, separated by a blank space. Um, so it's got these two stanzas, stanzas. It's got this A, B, A, B kind of rhyming scheme. Um, Miller comments on the narrative of the poem with, with its uh, shift from past to present, right? From looking at the words in the poem, the grammar, you can tell that it goes from uh, past tense, like um, past tense to present tense, which suggests maybe a transition from innocence to experience, right? So the, the beginning is like, she seemed a thing. The second part of the poem, no motion has she now. So we're talking now we're in the present, from past to present. And so on. Um, regarding the main theme, Miller writes that it's about Wordsworth's reaction to the death of a young woman, which he assumes, in line with critical tradition, is Lucy. So he um, assumes it's about Lucy, whose identity, identity remains unknown. Uh, so Miller writes that the poem expresses both eloquently restrained grief for that death and the calm of mature knowledge. Before he was innocent, Wordsworth were the speaker of the poem, before he was innocent, his spirit was sealed from knowledge as though he were asleep, closed in on himself. His innocence took the form of an ignorance of the fact of death. That is referring to the lines, a slumber did my spirit seal, I had no human fears. Uh, and then Lucy seemed so much alive back in the past. Lucy seemed so much alive, such an invulnerable, vital young thing that she could not possibly be touched by time, reach old age, and die. So this is about the lines, she seemed a thing that could not feel the touch of earthly years. Miller goes on, her seeming immortality reassured the speaker of his own, and so he did not anticipate with fear his own death. He had no human fears. To be human is to be mortal, and the most specifically human fear, it may be, is the fear of death. So this is Miller's explication of the poem. He, uh, and then he further explicates this by using facts from Wordsworth's biography. All right, so far we're on the traditional level. At about this point, however, Miller starts to disseminate the meaning of the poem, and we enter the second level of the deconstructive reading. So Miller begins his dissemination by focusing on the word thing in the first stanza. She seemed a thing that could not feel. A casual reader might not attach any special significance to this word. Right? She seemed a thing that could not feel. She, was, she couldn't feel. We, or she seemed like she couldn't feel anything. Um, but Miller points out some different meanings of the word Thing. So a person who has died can be considered a thing, in a sense, as opposed to a living creature. So we make kind of a difference between um, the living and kind of inanimate things. But we also use it in phrases like pretty young thing to describe a young woman. In the first stanza, while Lucy is apparently still alive and innocent, she is a young thing. In the Wordsworth doesn't really say young thing, just says a thing. <clears throat> and in the second stanza, after she has died, she is a thing more like an object and is compared by Wordsworth to rocks and stones and trees. Right? She's carried around uh, on the earth like rocks and stones and trees. Her dead body is, I guess. Uh, so then Heidegger. Heidegger is brought into the analysis in order to say more about the nature of thing. This is, a this is surprising, I think, from the perspective of traditional criticism, as there's not really much connection between Wordsworth and Heidegger. But, uh, you can find one, I'm sure, but... Uh, but in deconstruction, we seem to be encouraged to make far-flung connections in order to play with 
and open up meaning. I'm not going to get into the whole Heidegger bit. Um, just, you know, you can read it on your own. It's not that important for my purposes here. Um, but then we're given a reading of the poem as, in Miller's words, an obscure sexual drama. Hmm, okay. I, and in fact, I do find this uh, to be obscure, um, but it has something to do, as far as I can understand Miller. And Miller's given an, an example, I guess, in a probably in a more focused essay on this um, topic. He would maybe go into more detail, or maybe not, I don't know. But um, this obscure sexual drama has something to do with Lucy being both sexually penetrated and virginal at her death, or sexually experienced and also a virgin at her death. It is related to the line, the touch of earthly years, and Wordsworth, Wordsworth's anthropomorphic view of nature. So nature touches her sexually, I don't know. And it has something to do with the speaker of the poem being the displaced representative, Miller's words, the speaker of the poem, is the displaced representative of both the penetrated and the penetrator of both Lucy herself and of her unravishing ravisher, nature or death. So, well, think about that. So we arrive at various, I don't know what to say, um, arrive at various contradictions. One of those I have mentioned, uh, you know, of the various contradictions I've mentioned, I think I just mentioned two of them, but there's others. Um, we have thing as woman versus thing as inanimate object. And we have sexually experienced versus sexually inexperienced. And Miller writes that the reader is caught because of these differences of meaning, these oppositional meanings. The reader is caught in an unstillable oscillation, unsatisfying to the mind and incapable of being grounded in anything outside the activity of the poem itself. And this is kind of the result of every deconstructive reading, at least for Miller, where you're caught in this unstillable oscillation between these different meanings. You can't be satisfied because there's no ground outside of the poem that can ground the meaning of the poem. I think this is kind of um, incorrect, but I'm not going to uh, go into criticisms right now. Uh, but go continuing with dissemination, there's even more. So fasten your seatbelts. Whatever else Lucy might be, she is also, for Miller, Wordsworth's mother. So she's not just a young thing. Um, uh, yeah, there's different theories about how Lucy, about, about, um, about who Lucy was, but whatever else for Miller, she, um, she is also uh, Wordsworth's mother. Wordsworth's mother died when Wordsworth was eight. So she was kind of young when she died. Um, the poem is then also an interpretation of his mother's death, Wordsworth's mother's death, using the old trope of the lost son. So Lucy, you might know, means light, right? Like Lucifer, Lucid, things like that. So Lucy means light, although again, the name Lucy doesn't appear in the poem. But light is also, for Miller, again, logos, the fount of meaning, the logos. And so the loss of Lucy, or the mother, is the loss of the logos, or meaning itself, the loss of meaning. And this is apparently, for Miller, the drama of all Wordsworth's poetry about the loss of meaning and the returning of meaning and so on. The search for meaning, I guess. Uh, and without the logos, of course, the meanings of the words are unstable and become contradictory. So then it becomes kind of a poem, a poem about deconstruction, maybe. 
Um, luckily, this is about where Miller's analysis ends. I'm not going to go into all the details, of course. Uh, but this is about where he ends. I find that my appreciation for this really depends on my mood. I really find that um, I have to be in the right mood to read this stuff and uh, not want to throw it out the window. Sometimes I find it amusing and stimulating. Other times it just seems tedious and exhausting. Um, yeah, and I think whether you'll enjoy this kind of meaning dissemination or overreading, uh, Abram sometimes calls this overreading, because um, it kind of goes over our standard method of reading. Um, but he also says you could call it underreading because it undermines our um, standard reading. But anyway, whether you uh, enjoy this might depend on your personality, might depend on your mood, like it does for me. Um, and aside from these personal issues, of course, there are a number of philosophical arguments against deconstructive procedure. Um, I'd originally planned to talk about some of these, but uh, this has already taken long enough, so I'll maybe do that in another episode if I feel uh, interested enough in talking about that again. Hopefully, though, this gives you a taste of the deconstructive method, just a taste if you're not already familiar with it, and maybe brings this esoteric topic down to earth just a bit. Basically, uh, deconstruction then, as we saw, is a kind of double reading. The first reading establishes the meaning of the text using uh, pretty much traditional methods oriented toward author meaning or the author's intention. The second reading shows how this traditional meaning opens out into a network of conflicting or apparetic, as they say, um, but conflicting and undecidable meanings. All right, well, that is all for today. And as always, thanks for listening. See ya.